You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths taught in school and on corporate media. Today, we will be talking about the UN Secretary General Doug Hammarskjöld and the role that the UK and US government may or may not have played in his death. Our guest today is Andreas Roxen from the Leica Film and Television Production Company, and they recently released a film called Cold Case, Dog Hammerskold. I would suggest that everyone check this film out. And our patrons keep our show running. And today we would like to thank our newest patrons, Eli Gerzon and... CJ Clover. Thank you, guys. Without you, we would not have been able to make this show. And we still need more help in order to get you more episodes and bring more guests. So if you want to become a patron, go to www.patreon.com slash historic underscore L-Y. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Of course. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you do when you're not, I guess, doing this film? <laughs> I am a, a journalist and film producer. I started off with s smaller stories, and as experience and age took me further, my stories got longer and more complicated and more international. I'm running a small production company in Stockholm, like a film, uh, and this film is uh, a co-production between some Nordic production companies. Oh, okay. One thing for Americans, can you quickly explain who Doug Hammarskjöld is? Doug Hammarskjöld, he was appointed the Secretary General of the United Nations in 1953. He was the second Secretary General to the United Nations. He was a proposal from the French and sort of negotiated in between the superpowers to lead the organization. They thought that they would have control over him. And he was the Secretary General until his death in 1961. And he accomplished a lot in a very interesting and complex period of time, uh, the end of the 50s and the beginning of the 60s. This is when the Cold War really uh, gets uh, deep and serious. Among his accomplishments before the Congo crisis was that he managed to uh, handle the Suez crisis when Britain, France, and Israel attacked Egypt and occupied the Sinai and the Suez uh, uh, Canal. And he managed to uh, stop that war, negotiate a ceasefire, and eventually let the French and British leave the area. It was a very humiliating defeat for the French and the British in particular. And another thing he did was that he negotiated with the Chinese to get American prisoners of war from the Korea War released because he managed to open up communications with a very close Chinese administration at the time. So from being a very um, anonymous and easy to handle uh, guy, he managed to, on his own record, create a very, very strong reputation around his person. Can you explain what was going on in Congo at the time? Yes, this was the time of decolonization all over the world. Uh, so many former colonies uh, became independent. And this process was going on all over Africa. Uh, Congo was a Belgian colony and it was the, basically the only colony that Belgium had. And they decided in 1960 to let, to introduce uh, majority rule 
meaning self-dependence for the Congo. The Congo was not well prepared for this. The Belgians had not educated any people. I think there were like 20 Congolese, black Congolese, who had any kind of university uh, level education at the time. And the process was done too fast. So in June uh, 1961, there was an election and there was a prime minister elected whose name was Patrice Lumumba. Yes. And uh, immediately there was chaos and turmoil in the country with lots of violence, uh, looting, and very many white people were fleeing the country. And also there were parts of the country that seceded to be independent republics within the the Congo or new countries. One of those countries was Katanga in the southeast. That was the most prosperous and where much of uh, the natural resources were exploited by multinational companies. The Belgian corporation, Union Minière, being the biggest one or most important one. Yeah. So very soon, very soon, when, when turmoil began and when parts of the country seceded, Patrice Lumumba, he turned to the United Nations for help and asked if the United Nations could unite the Congo again. And at first, the United Nations started to discuss uh, the issue and Patrice Lumumba wanted things to happen. So he then turned to the Russians, the Soviets, who were very eager to help. And by doing that, uh, Lumumba was after that suspected or considered to be a communist. Anyway, the United Nations then decided to enter into the conflict. They brought the UN peacekeeping forces into the country to try to stabilize and try to quell the, the Russian influence. And that was what eventually brought an end to the life of Dag Hammarskjöld. Yeah. Um I guess until recently, the public believed that he died in a plane crash or in an accident, right? How did you discover that there was more to the story? Well, the cause of the crash has never been established. The first investigations into the, the crash were either inconclusive or, as in the case of the Rhodesian investigation, they were leaning towards pilot error that it was an accident, that it was not the result of an attack. But all the way, because it has been inconclusive, there has been big question marks around it. And even the United Nations, when they did their investigation into the case and presented the report that was inconclusive, they said that they would reopen the case if new information emerged. And then in 2013, there was a report from an independent commission of jurists presenting lots of information that in pieces had been presented before. And the United Nations then engaged in their own investigation, first with a three-person panel and then with an eminent person who is expected to present a report in June this year. So the reason for reopening the case was basically two major things. One was a book written by a British author or historian named Susan Williams, where she had found many new pieces of information that she meant was pointing at an attack. And the other thing was an investigation made by a Swedish private investigator who went into the bush where the plane had crashed. And we found witnesses that were at the spot when it happened who could tell him that there was another plane in the sky, that there were explosions, that there were soldiers on the ground before the plane was officially found. 
And these facts together sort of sparked the new interest from the United Nations. So that was from that side. So then it's been like the case has never been closed. It has been an open case. It has been a mystery. And as we, we our starting point was this private investigator, Joram Björkdal, who besides meeting with these witnesses also had made or found lots of other kinds of evidence. So that was the starting point for us as well when we started to make this film. I hear that the Belgian mining company was employing a paramilitary group. Is that right? Well, the the steps here are the dots. Sometimes there is a distance between the dots. Mm -hmm. But where there is evidence in the documents is that the mining company in the Omnier, they were really worried about what Dog Hamashal was doing. They believed that the United Nations involvement in the Congo would mean nationalization of the resources, meaning that Union Minier would lose all their assets. And we are talking billions and billions and billions of money. So they were really worried at the time and you could read from letters and from minutes from meetings that they wanted to stop the united nations they were also hiring mercenaries they were also paying for the air force to be built in, in katanga they were also producing the weapons in their factories and plants to supply the soldiers with the weapons to fight the United Nations. They were also acting as advisors to the government, the Africans in the government of Katanga, meaning that they were in all aspects playing behind the scenes to fight the United Nations. And then I could go further, you know, explaining how important it was for the new media. Go ahead. Uh, Then we have time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) But what we have found or where we can show that there was an attack planned and performed is through documents presented by Desmond Tutu in 1998, when the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was going to close down in South Africa where they were investigating the crimes of the apartheid regime or time. And he then presented a set of documents that basically were orders and notes, uh, discussions that was planning the attack on Dog Hamashon's plane. And in those documents, it is, uh, for instance, suggested that the Neomenier was cooperating with them with this group and that they were supplying explosives or TNT for bombs to, or a bomb to be placed in the plane in the Congo uh, capital. The bomb did not explode on takeoff as it was meant to be or as it was planned, but then they had a contingency plan where a plane should shoot it down. And there is also a final report when they say that the attack or the operation was successful. So that was presented by Desmond Tutu in uh, 1998. The problem was that no one went further with that investigation Mm -hmm. and uh, that it was not proven that the organization was real or that the documents were real or people that were mentioned in the documents were not uh, identified or presented as real. So what we then managed to do in our work was to find people who had been active in this organization to confirm that the organization was real. And that gives more credibility to the documents uh, themselves. And then finally, we also found fictionalized manuscript written by the leader of this organization in the 80s and 90s 
where the attack on Dog Hammarskjöld's plane is described, where it's described how a technician is planting a bomb on board the plane in Leopoldville, how the bomb does not explode, how he makes a phone call, and how the, the leadership of the organization are worried when they do not hear that the plane is down or Hammarskjöld is dead. And when they finally get the note from the operators in then Rhodesia, where the plane crashed, that the operation was successful. And these notes or this manuscript also gives credibility to that the organization was responsible for killing Dog Hammarskjöld. And how does this tie in with both the CIA and MI6? Yeah. The documents presented by Desmond Tutu, there is one document where they described how they are cooperating with Union Minier and that there has been a meeting with Hold on. They, the M- MI6 people, I mean the British intelligence, oh. and that the operation has been approved by Dulles, meaning Alan Dulles, the leader of the CIA. By they, you mean the South African paramilitary group? Yes, okay. the documents from the South African Paramilitary Group. It's called South African Institute for Maritime Research. Mm. And we, to make it easier, I mean, that is just uh, a name. But to make it easier, we just shorten it and call them CIMAR. Yes, that's the group. And that's their documents. You can read that they have a meeting with MI6 people, that the operation is approved by MI6 and by Alan Dulles from the CIA. In another document, it is also clear that they are cooperating with a CIA agent in in Katanga and Elizabethville, whose code name is Dwight. So we've been looking for that as well, but we have not been very successful. But that is one thing that connects the CIA, but it's only approval. It doesn't mean that they were organizing the killing of Dog Hammarskjöld, but they approve that this organization is doing it. And this organization is, as we understand, and as it has been suggested by, well, pretty good sources uh, that it, it is operating and led from the UK. So it's a UK organization operating in South Africa. Was it a white nationalist organization? Yes, it was. It was in the 80s and 90s and for a long time. It was operating to preserve white rule in southern africa and the organization obviously also it was engaged in the different race wars or wars civil wars that were running in the neighboring countries such as rhodesia mozambique and angola so they were active to support white rule or quite supportive rule in other countries. And then when the well, apartheid regime was under pressure from international sanctions and from liberation movements in South Africa, the ANC and others, this organization was used or took part in defending white rule. And there is uh, one operation, and that is just before apartheid ends, where it's called DAV, where they are sitting down with the leadership of the extreme right in South Africa and also with the leadership or representatives from the ANC to negotiate white homeland in the new South Africa. So it would be like a piece of South Africa where white rule could be maintained. And in those negotiations, they were using violence as a negotiation tool, talking in terms of uh, setting 300,000 
whites in motion, with armed whites in motion to sort of start a civil war if they did not get the homeland that they wanted. So yes, it was white supremacist organization. And just taking that back to Britain and the UK, as we understand it, and that is pretty much from what the conclusions or the research that the historian Susan Williams did, is that the uh, suspected leaders of the organization in Britain, they are closely connected to something called the Monday Club. The Monday Club was a fraction within the Tory party with members of parliament with very, very conservative ideology. They created a group to oppose decolonization in Africa or in the British Empire. And the reason why they started that was that in 1960, the British Prime Minister Harold Macmillan he held a speech in Cape Town where he declared the new decolonization policy of the United Kingdom. It is called the Winds of Change speech. And it was very important because that was the starting point for the United Kingdom to hand over their colonies to the people who lived in, the, in that, those countries. So this group of conservative or ultra-conservative Tory members, they then formed this club called the Monday Club because Harold Macmillan's speech was on a Monday to oppose in any way decolonization in the British Empire. And several of the members of that club did have private assets or investments in Southern Africa, in South Africa, in Rhodesia, and also in the Congo. Mm. And that was all from the mining and to land to industry. So they were very involved. And one of the leaders uh, of the club was in September 1961, when the conflict between the Katangese and the United Nations was very intense. He was traveling intensely in Rhodesia and in the Congo and in South Africa. And he was on a weekly basis in communication with the Prime Minister of Rhodesia to try to push for support for resistance towards United Nations. And in this group, the ultra-conservative group, you had people who had been uh, supportive of uh, Hitler during the uh, Second World War. They were extreme right, and they continued to be extreme right all through their lives. And you will find people in that club who were active also in the 80s to support the South African apartheid regime with sanction-busting operations and also lobbying for sanction-busting in the United Kingdom, people being very close to Margaret Thatcher at the time. So, I mean, you have a white supremacist ideology and group of people also in the United Kingdom. It is not only in South Africa. So this organization had this paramilitary unit to use for operations and activities in Southern Africa from at least from 1961 or 60 and up till the end of apartheid. Wow. Did this group have a relationship with Union Minor, uh, I'm talking about the Monday Club, or was it just investment? Yeah. The, um, it gets a bit complicated, uh, but basically what you can say is that the natural resources when it comes to mining interests, just to concentrate on that, was maintained by 
a few very big corporations in southern Africa. And you can basically say that in the Congo, you had a neominiad. In eastern Africa, you had something called tanks, uh, Tanzanian. And uh, then in Rhodesia, you have the Rhodesian Selection Trust and uh, the British uh, South African company. And in South Africa, you had Anglo-American and De Beers. There might be a few more. But basically, these are really big. They are extremely prosperous and earn lots of lots of lots of money. These companies were integrated through ownership, but also with directors on the boards. So you would find the board members, you know, everything is cross-owned and also cross-managed. So on the board of the Neomeniar, you will also find the people from tanks boards. And, you know, in the leadership of the Rhodesian Selection Trust, you will find people from Anglo-American and from the Neomeniar. So it was like a web of ownership within these companies. And there were several British members on the board because the Neomeniar was also a British company. It was not only a Belgian company, mm. but it was also owned and managed by the British. And these British people, you would, in between, I have only looked at the board members, but there are board members that are politically active. You have members of parliament, and I have not found people from these boards in the Monday Club, but of course, there was communication just within the Tory party and the members of parliament. I'm just overwhelmed by the corruption. <laughs> and I guess, um, did they recover anything from the plane, like the black box or anything like that, that gave us any other evidence? There were no black boxes at the time. They were not invented yet. Ah. So no black box. They found uh, at the crash site, they were, of course, or at least they say, they were looking if they could find any evidence of explosives or bullets and stuff. And they found bullet holes in the plane or the wreckage. And they found bullets in bo the bodies of at least two of the guards. And that was explained as that the ammunition that was carried or was on board uh, did explode because of the heat mm. and caused the bullets to enter the bodies of the guards after they were dead. And the same with the bullet holes that were the damages they found on the plane. What you also need to know is that, and that is, to me, it is a mystery, but about 85% of the plane is suggested to have burnt. So the remains were only like 15% left. So there was not very much to investigate for the commissions who, who did that. And the question mark we have is whether the the plane that has used so much fuel from Leopoldville would burn with such intensity so that the plane vanishes, as suggested. Or possibly if there was destroyed after the crash with influence from the soldiers because there are witnesses who tells how after the crash, several hours after the crash, there is suddenly a very strong fire coming from the crash site. So yes, bullets in bodies, bullet holes in, in the fuselage. Then there was also one person surviving the crash who was a, one of the guards an American whose name was Harold June. And he lived for six days. He was severely 
burnt, but he was waking up and talking at some points. And he was talking about explosions in the explosions. Mm-hmm. He was saying that dogs said, uh, turn back, turn back. And well, he could give you know some indications that something went wrong before the plane crashed. Then, unfortunately, he died after six days from kidney failure. Wow. I heard that there was some communique that U.S. intelligence officer heard. Are you familiar with that? Yes. We have one of them is participating in the film. It's an NSA officer whose name was Charles Southall. He is now dead but states that on the night of the 17th, when he's at home with his family, he is then serving at a relay station in Cyprus for the NSA. Then he is home with his family when he gets a phone call from the station where they tell him to come to the station because something is going to happen. So he goes there and then they can listen on radio traffic where they hear a pilot saying that he sees the plane come in and that he is taking a run on it and they hear the gun firing and then the pilot says I hit it it's in flames it's going down and at the time he was not aware that this was he was listening to the Hammerschild crash, but he, he concluded afterwards that that was the case. He then claims that this was, of course, a recording and that it was processed the normal way, well, according to practice, and was sent back to Washington. And so he has suggested that the attack is on record. Then the UN investigators have several locations tried to ask the United States administration to get hold of this evidence, whereas the state has answered that we have items that aligns with your request, but they need to be confidential in regards to national security. So they have not, still not handed over the material they have to the United Nations investigators. Wow. And then we have also another guy, and he was working for the CIA, I think, and sitting at a, also a listening station on Malta, also in the Mediterranean who has also given a record of listening to the attack on the plane. His name is Paul Abram. He's also American. But we have not spoken to him directly. So what I tell you is only the stuff that you will find on the Internet. When Hammerschold's body was recovered, there was an Ace of Spades card tucked into his shirt lapel. What was what's the significance of that? Why was that there? Well, yes, there is a playing card in his collar, which is very, very strange. And there were actually cards. The, the sort of the, the rest of the the pile was also around at the crash site. I have seen some of those cards with burn marks on them myself. But yes, the Ace of Spades, it's suggested to be the Ace of Spades, and there are several sources saying that. The Ace of Spades is used by mercenaries and soldiers. And it is where you will find it most is during the Vietnam War, where American soldiers were placing Ace of Spades on their victims to intimidate or scare the Viet Cong. And at that time, it was done sort of systematically. The history of the Ace of Spades in the mercenary community goes further back, but I am not 
sure of the roots of that. In the film, we are talking to one of the members of the South African Institute for Maritime Research, who was an operative and intelligence officer. And he says that the ace of spades, that was the CIA card, that you knew from the ace of spades that the CIA were involved in an operation. So if all that fits together, that means that the ace of spades in Hammarskjöld's caller is calling card for the CIA. And meaning that the CIA was playing a significant role in the attack. Like, have you requested files from the CIA, or is it still classified? It has not been the main trail for us to go to authorities or governments to ask them. We also know that this has been done continuously from the United Nations, and that. Of course, governments have done that too. I mean, the Swedish government has also posed questions. And we feel that this is a method that they can use because they have the muscles and the authority to sort of address those kind of questions. If we would come as journalists or filmmakers, we would be dismissed. And what we can do, what they cannot do, is to knock doors, kick doors, and go deep into archives that, you know, we can find things. We have methods that United Nations or Swedish government doesn't have. So we are working, we are sort of complementary to what these big bodies can do. So we have not asked for the CIA or the United States government or the British government to release things to us. We have found other ways to bring new information forward. And when you were investigating this, like, what was the most surprising thing that you learned from this investigation? Well, the most important thing and where I have learned a lot is through talking or finding this organization, the South African Institute for Maritime Research, and talk to the soldiers, talk to the people involved in that organization. You can read about paramilitary organization or secret societies and all kinds of stuff. But uh, to me, this suddenly became very, very real. And that was, of course, well, great importance to me. And when it comes to the conclusions, I mean, if you have organizations like this that are, you know, for hire and that are active in sort of changing or manipulating the official policies and official, you know, governments and toppling governments and killing politicians or people for different reasons or just, you know, causing terror to achieve, well, influence. That has shaken my world. Before we go, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about that I haven't mentioned about either the death or the film? Yes, we need to talk about AIDS. Okay. We need to talk about AIDS because through the, I mean, when we haven't been investigating this paramilitary group, there has been quite a lot of documentation around it. We have several hundred pages of, you know, communications and plans and operations and all kinds of stuff. And in this pile of documents, we also found a very, very big interest from the leader, he calls himself Commodore Keith Maxwell, where he is elaborating on using HIV as a biological weapon and to basically infect people as a mean of weaponry to kill people. And uh, we were 
in the film as we did not have that objective you know to to find anything like that we were for a very long time trying to ignore that documentation and finally we could not do that anymore because what we found was that this leader the commodore we found evidence that he was pretending to be a doctor that he was running medical clinics in Johannesburg at least four wow. and at least one of them was referred to as an AIDS clinic where he was uh, experimenting on black people offering them treatment at a very low cost and he was giving them false injections and furthermore we managed to find the relatives of an operative who had been involved in Cimer who had it was a young woman who had traveled in Mozambique and Angola who had told her family that she had discovered that they were smuggling infected or contaminated vaccines to Mozambique and Angola and that she was worried about it and that the members of her unit were being killed and that she expected to be killed herself and eventually she was killed so the family turned to the well wanted to they are convinced that she was killed because she was part of an organization that was spreading aids and then finally we met with this operative who told us that the group was spreading aids in southern africa so finally we needed to bring that story into the film as well because we knew and because the story was that story was of course of more importance the audience of today than the story of dog hamishold that is of course also important but I mean this is still going on. Uh, Southern Africa is the region in the world that is mostly affected by the HIV uh, pandemic. Just curious, how bad is the AIDS crisis say in South Africa or Congo or Zimbabwe? Well, 80% of the people infected with HIV live in Southern Africa. Wow. So 80% of the so if you take all the world's population with HIV, 80% of them live in southern Africa. Southern Africa in these countries. Yes. And in South Africa, one out of five living with HIV. So it's a huge huge disaster, catastrophe. Lots of lots of human suffering. going on there there are some countries neighboring south africa where it's even worse botswana is one of them also mentioned by the evidence we have so the problem is that there is no scientific explanation for southern africa to be so affected by hiv why not western africa why not you know other regions in the world but uh, southern africa is the foremost affected by this disease and around what year did they start um i guess having these clinics and working with quote unquote aids the samr well everything i mean this is uh, from the mid 80s until maybe 1992 or 1993 this is where we have the documentation and the statements from these witnesses so th- that is the period this is also a period in when uh, the conflict in south africa is raising to it, well when it gets worse <laughs> and in the mid uh, 1980s the president or the prime minister of south africa pw botha he declares a total onslaught on the opposition to apartheid and where lots of lots of dirty operations were going on and where people were killed in thousands so it's a really really 
bad period in South Africa, in Southern Africa, and in the world, basically. It was one of the worst conflicts that we had uh, in that time. Wow. Was that uh, res responding to your question? That That's, I mean, I'm not surprised, but I mean, the U.S. has, like, I guess the CIA has backed groups that experimented with syphilis in Guatemala, so it has been done before, so I, I'm not surprised. Um, well, now, I've been, of course, looking into, you know, bi biological warfare programs to try to figure out what was going on. Uh, what is clear is that South Africa had a biological warfare program going on. It was called Project Coast. And it is also clear that the scientists at Project Coast were cooperating with American intelligence in, in different ways at the time. But that doesn't mean that the Americans were supporting or in any way, maybe not even aware of the use of biological weapons. I have no evidence for that. It is clear that there was cooperation, but no evidence that of involvement, so to speak. I understand. Sorry, I, I did jump the gun a little bit because I <laughs> thought CIA-backed group, and yeah, you're right. Brandon, you had a question? Um, yeah. The day after the crash, Harry Truman mentioned that Hammerschild was on the point of getting something done when they killed him. Notice that I said, when they killed him, was his quote. And mm -hmm. I know that after Truman had left office, because the CIA was created on his watch, he expressed regret at certain times that it was created and mentioned that there was need for a house cleaning. Did he ever say anything else or elaborate on what he meant when he said that about Hammerschel's death, or did any investigators follow up with him? Well, we've been trying to look into that too, but we did not find anything else referring to the quote that he expressed the day after. So it is really an awful thing to say if you don't, you know, it's like saying A and not saying B at all. Uh, but what yeah. can be <laughs> said? Yeah. But what can be said around that is that it is not a secret that the relationship between the CIA and the Kennedy administration was very, very strained at the time. I mean, this is the time of the uh, Bay of Pigs and this is the time of the Berlin Wall. So, I mean, lots of things were happening. And there you had... Kennedy being the president at the time, and he was a president who was leaning very much to towards the civil rights movement and towards sort of liberal forces. Uh, and he was friendly towards Lumumba. Friendly, I think everyone was cautious when it comes to Lumumba. But yes, he he never expressed that uh, Lumumba was a communist. I don't do not think so. But for sure, the CIA did. And but uh, Kennedy was supportive of Hammarskjöld, and he was also supportive of Hammarskjöld's actions and initiatives when it came to decolonization, because Hammarskjöld was a very very strong supporter to decolonization and to the newly self-dependent countries all over the world. And that was basically his power base, Hammarskjöld's power base. But for every country that became independent, that would be a vote for him within the United Nations structure. So Kennedy was supporting Hammarskjöld on the base of his power base in the US because this was liberation, this was self-dependence, this was uh, liberal values. And then I think that, you know, when it came to the issue of the power games where the CIA were involved, 
when Lumumba invited the Russians to the Congo, that was a very, very big threat in the context of the Cold War, because the Congo, with all its resources, would mean stronghold for the Soviet Union and could not be accepted at any price. And what Hamoshel was trying to do, he was trying to unite the Congo under democratic leadership, where you knew that you had a very, very strong support of Lumumbism, Patrice Lumumba, and his party, which was leaning very much to the left. If democracy would be the rule at that time and without involvement, that would probably mean a leftist or even communist regime in the Congo. And that would also mean that one of the resources for the nuclear warfare would be lost for the West. The uranium that was used for the bombs for Hiroshima and Nagasaki were, they came from the Congo. That, I mean, the, oh wow, the uranium, uranium resources in the Congo were extensive. So that would mean a shift of balance of power in the whole of Africa. And it would be a disaster for Cold War terms that would be a disaster for the West to lose it. So instead, the CIA manipulated, and it took some time for them, but they manipulated in a way so that the power was manageable in the Congo, meaning manipulating Joseph Mobutu into power. And they knew that they could handle him. It was only, I mean, he, he would do anything for, for a price. So that is how they kept control over the Congo for the next 40 years or something. What happened to Union Minoret? Are they still operating in Congo? The natural resources were at some point nationalized also by Mobutu. And I'm not sure. There is, uh, I mean, Union Minier was later incorporated in, you know, bigger companies and there were mergers and stuff. And we have been in contact with the corporation that is now where Union Minier finally ended. It's called Unicor and is a Belgian company. But the way they kept on operating, I'm, I'm not really sure, but for sure uh, it was profitable for them w what happened after. <laughs> they were not excluded concerning Hamashal. And that is at his time, 53 to 61, he was playing a very, very important role in international politics. Almost every day, or at least every week, you could you would see him on the front page, or you would see the United Nations having a role to, or having a say in almost everything that happened in the world. And you need to remember that the United Nations was a creation or a result or consequence of the Second World War. It didn't exist before that. So it was like uh, trying to find its role in the world. And it was accepted from the creation and for, you know, a decade or two as something to count on or to need to listen to. But what Hamlishol did by supporting the new Afro-Asian uh, states was that he was changing the power balance in the world. He was like a, an own force and he was not manageable in the way that Western governments or even uh, the Soviets were expecting. He was a force of his own and he was running with the idea that the UN declaration or the UN statutes would, you know, be the base for his operations or activities. And that was disturbing to other powers. So what basically happened when he died was that it broke the backbone of the United Nations 
as an organization. And it, that organization has never after reached a uh, role as significant as during Hammarskjöld's uh, reign. So something very important happened in Ndola on that night in September 1961 that is affecting us all today as well. So his policy making a point of supporting decolonization in former Western colonies was like explicitly a project to create an independent power base for the UN that would be free from, say, control of the Western Bloc? Not only the Western Bloc, but yes, an independent power or power to be recognized as much as United States president or the Soviet president. Right. They'd no longer be a tool of existing powers. They'd be able to actually adjudicate international disputes. Exactly. But wow. they, they were at the time, I mean, what happened was that you got several new states in the security or in the UN General Assembly with votes. And the, of course, these all these countries, they voted for their own interest. But there was a common interest between the poor countries of the world towards the imperialist states as the United States or Soviet. So there were many hopes attached to the United Nations as an organization who could help these countries or where they could have a voice in the world through the United Nations. And when you get the vote balance change as much as you did in the end of the 50s and the beginning of the 60s, suddenly the Afro-Asian bloc was something that you needed to recognize because Hammarskjöld, he had invented, for instance, he had invented the United Nations troops. They were called peacekeeping forces, but they, it was basically armed troops to be sent to whatever conflict there was in the world. So you had a new body with a, a democratic sort of vote power from the Afro-Asian bloc that had uh, access to arms to sort of resist any violation of the United Nations statutes or, you know, what was sort of agreed upon a supranational basis or multilateral basis. What did the Swedish government think of Hammarskjöld's efforts? Were they generally supportive of this project of his or were they more aligned with the United States and alarmed by what he wanted to do with the UN? Okay, uh, there, are, there are different answers to give to that question. But Sweden is a small country, also squeezed uh, between superpowers, but still with, you know, strong economic interest and, you know, lots of trade and well, all of that. So Sweden has always spoken from the David side of David and Goliath. So we could identify very much when small countries wanted to be free from superpower influence. In that way, Hammarskjöld was supported and also presenting a very Swedish standpoint. Also to remember is that Hammarskjöld, he was a Swedish civil servant. His father was the prime minister before the First World War. And he had made his full career within the Swedish governmental structures. So he was very much a Swedish governmental representative also in the United Nations. And what you also can remember is that we uh, have a history, an unfortunate history of prominent Swedes standing up for human rights and democracy that has fell victims for violence, starting with Folke Bernadotte in uh, Israel in 1948, going on, well, starting with Raoul Wallenberg, who, who saved uh, Jews in Hungary and then was in prison in, in the Soviet for many years and died there. And then over to Olaf Palme and Anna Lind, the Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister of Sweden 
in recent years. So we have a history of people with public standpoints who have been killed. That's the 20th century history of Sweden. A surprising moment for us doing the film was when we were interviewing this intelligence officer from Saimar. His name is Alexander Jones. And he was, you know, telling about all the gruesome things that they did. But then in the end of the interview, he was giving sort of the conclusion on Hammarskjöld and saying, well, Hammarskjöld, he was killed because he posed a threat to economic interests, uh, meaning big corporations and countries who wanted to come to Africa to get the resources without paying any price. So he was posing a threat to these interests, and that's why he was killed. So it's like the representative for the villain or the evil organization is sort of giving the, the idea of what was at stake and the consequences of the events in 1961. Yeah, that's kind of surprisingly frank. Did he ever express any regrets? Or I, I always wonder how people like that justify the stuff that they do. Yes, he regrets very much what he did. Then he is also explaining the, the context. You had a situation where racism was law, where you were, you know, in the context is there is a difference between white and black. And white has a value and black does not. And in that context, that's where he grew up. I mean, and, you know, from early years in school, he was part of the cadet system where you were soldiering in school. And at 16, he was, you know, doing mandatory service for the South African Defense Force for two years, where the ideology was that we are... South Africa is leading a war towards the rest of the world. The communists are coming to take over. They are coming to take over Southern Africa, and we need to fight that. And those who are opposing the systems are either, well, they are communists, and they happen to be black. <laughs> so the blacks are the enemies. That's the context, you know, or the idea imposed on a young man in South Africa at that time. Of course, when Alexander Jones gets more mature and, you know, he, he has now a family of mixed color and, you know, thinking or reflecting on what he was doing back then, of course, causes remorse and regrets. And that's also the, as I understand it, the objective for him to have come forward. That makes a lot of sense. And actually, for our podcast, this is a very good framework because we are trying to tell the story of, for lack of a better word, the third world, because that's a different story than the one that the U.S. will tell. So, like, this is exactly the kind of stuff that we love to have on our podcast. <laughs> Mm, yeah, okay. perfect. <laughs> well, I hope I hope that you find it uh, interesting enough. I mean, oh, uh, I'm I uh, uh, I'm not you. I'm not used to listen to myself very much, but you know, from <laughs> this is it has been a really interesting journey for me. So I'm happy to share it. Before we go, can you please tell the audience how they can watch your film, like where to find it? The film is now on a festival circuit, so. It, will be screened on festivals also in the United States. And then the film has been purchased by Magnolia that is uh, distributing it in the US. And as I have heard, nothing is sure, but as I've heard, uh, it will be uh, uh, the, the big uh, theatric release will be in August. So that's the first step. And then I, I have no idea on what platforms it will you know, finally be screened. And how does the audience find you on Twitter or other social media? 
There is a Facebook page called Cold Case Hammarskjöld. There you can communicate with us and you can also follow the adventures of the film itself. Yeah, like I said, for me, I was very fascinated when I read about you in the New York Times. And although, and I can't wait to see the movie when it comes over here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I hope you will get the opportunity to see it. We're quite proud of, what, of the results. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to seeing it. And thank you for joining us and have a wonderful rest of the evening. Yes, and same to you, and have a nice weekend as well. Thank you, you too. Bye-bye. Okay, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W-R-E-C-K-T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.